here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This time, this time it's going to be the work of Andy Spinoza, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. Has just written a book that's come out titled Manchester Unspun. How a City Got High on Music. This came out 2023 on Manchester University Press and Andy has been in the city for quite a few decades and he also founded the alternative magazine City Life in 1983 and spent the next 10 years as the gossip columnist for the Manchester Evening News. And then much more beyond that. Anyway, look, this is the interview. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Andy, it's over to you. Uh, my cultural, um, you know, firelighter moment was well, well, very much Bowie and um, and glam. I was born in '61, but um, you know, North London kid, comprehensive school. If you imagine a school like Grange Hill, very yes. sort of multicultural and ram, ram, rambunctious. Um, Lots of reggae um, floating through the, you know, the sixth form common room. But that was, you know, I was 16 in 1977 when punk rock broke in a mainstream way. And I became, you know, a huge uh, obsessive music week, you know, music weekly matter, newspaper reader. So I would collect the enemy sounds and melody maker from the news agent every every thursday from the tube station next to our school and it was it was punk really that um you know 16 1977 was a good good time to be 16 sex pistols went on top of the pops and um and i started going to gigs right to rain i could go to the rainbow in in north london um finsbury park um and i see them in the west end i was i saw the buzzcocks a lot. I saw the Ramones, um, Generation X, Rosillos, Gang of Four, loads of um, I suppose post-punk. You'd say um, seventy-six to seventy-eight in my sort of sixth form years. And I was sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. Moved to Manchester as a student in eighteen. In, in when I was eighteen. So I think the Buscops my favourite group at that stage. So they were probably the group that I. Um, I love the wit, the wordplay, the melody, and their artwork. You know, the, the covers, the sleeves by Malcolm Garrett were uh, really uh, an ironic, playful sense of design. And um, yeah, I thought Manchester, I just, Manchester called me. Yes. Pick <laughs> it its whole ambiance, um, Joy Division as well. You know, the whole Joy Division sound, people said, did sound like the late Manchester of the late 70s. If a music could sound like the, a city, then that's what, you know, the Joy Division sound um, was was like. So, yeah, that was only one place for me to go, Manchester. Manchester. What did you study there, by the way? I studied at Manchester University. I studied a general arts degree. Um it was history and English literature and American studies, um, a sort of a very um, varied 
humanities degree, basically, lots of mostly literature. And were you sort of picking up, I mean, you mentioned those particular bands, and obviously you were there sort of, you were the right age for punk rock as well. So did you sort of feel that there was something quite precious and quite special about what you were listening to at that time and weren't just harking back going, oh, I wish I was born 10 years earlier and would have been in San Francisco? Yeah, well, I think, you know, experiencing it then was, you know, it was all about being young and in that experience. And I think it's hard at the time to put a kind of significance on it when you're 16. I mean, this is in a way why I read the music press, because it did give you that context. It did say, this is an important movement. If you like, this is the, you know, there's something big going on here. Um, and so, but I think when you, you know, when when you're young, it's as much about just pogoing or <laughs> that thing of gathering with your friends, um, because there were tribes then, weren't there? There were, you know, I, th I think pop culture and youth culture has changed so much in that um, your music then really was a matter of life and death, or you felt it was, because your whole identity was bound up in it. Today, yes. today I think for young people, music's just, you know, Paul Morley's called it mulch, you know, just content, everyday content to be uh, competed with online with streaming shows and video games and movies and sport and God knows what else that comes through your phone, you know, but music then was, far, I think, far more precious. It was more bound up with your identity. And um, it certainly, I think, you know, there were, there were things that happened in punk that do it yourself. Um, independent-minded, sceptical spirit that definitely influenced me to, for instance, set up the magazine that I set up in Manchester and just informed the way I, I felt about the world. Um, yeah. I'm not sure youth culture, youth music, I don't think it does that today particularly, you know, because of those, because of the difference that I've just described. Yes. And also, I mean, yeah, I mean, the tribal thing is very sort of strong during that time. And there was, you couldn't sort of have your foot in more than one camp. And I do remember sort of certain bands about where, and it says a lot about where I was growing up, but Status Quo were the, the band that were untouchables. And, you know, it was it was rock, it was heavy rock and just rock and roll and denim. And, you know, even appearing to like something like The Beat, and that incredible, you know, mirror in the bathroom, and you were immediately going to get beaten up and sort of chased down the street. You know, it was it was kind of also if you think about, you know, certainly black music uh, and rock music were or, or guitar music and black music were completely in different worlds. And you could, you know, you weren't allowed to uh like one or another. It was kind of I think it was more Prince than anyone else who started to break that down. It was certainly very rigid in America where those different types of music even had their own charts, you know. But it was a kind of a musical apartheid. And, yeah, those those kind of seemingly bizarre, when you look back on the rules about what, you know, if you like one thing, you couldn't like another. Yes. So it, was it was like Romeo and Juliet, but just with the soundtrack of your life, really. So once you finished your degree, because it's always an interesting time, but most, I mean, you know, being kind of curious with that sort of alternative culture in the, the 70s, I don't know if you read this amazing piece in The Guardian last, this week, by Nicholas Saunders, who set up alternative 
London and then alternative England and Wales and this kind of and he set up Neil's yard there was there was a very big alternative scene that was developing at that point and we had things like Crank's Cafe we had John is it Seabrook with his self-sufficiency book so people were coming out of the cities idealistically setting up their sort of you know little you know ideal it, it was almost like uh, this life is it um, the good life wasn't it it was, it was almost up there with that so there was a there's a very ideal idealistic kind of moment really during that 70s into the 80s but at the same time we had Thatcher in 79 then we had the Falkland War which really made it very tense because suddenly Thatcher went from almost a vote of no confidence to being unstoppable and then we had the minor strike and and the busting of the unions, Green and Common. So things were getting pretty tetchy around that 80s. And then there was that definite left, right, which side were you on? So when you finished your degree, you then set up a magazine, don't you? Alternative magazine, City Life, which, as you say, was for um, myself and two other students came out of the university and set up as a workers' cooperative, a magazine called City Life, loosely based on the timeout sort of model in London. But it was, you know, for people who felt the mainstream media, which in, in print media in Manchester was the local paper, the Manchester Evening News, the biggest, um, city, you know, uh, evening uh, regional paper in the country. And we didn't feel that it appealed to us or young people like us who, you know, who were into indie music who went to starting to go to the hacienda which had just opened for instance um who were interested in the sort of fringe theater scene and and maybe um the shops you know the more independent fashion stores there were in manchester so we felt city life would appeal to them and we did you know we it, it, it was a success in many ways in that we grew it to a, a staff of 20 uh, 21 people ultimately before it did go into financial difficulties ended up being taken over by the Manchester Evening News um, but to your point about alternative culture you know there were alternative you don't hear the phrase anymore alternative comedians alternative lifestyles alternative media because of course the internet has made everyone a publisher everyone has got their own alternative um uh sources of information so back then there was the mainstream the mainstream media for instance and then there was alter alternatives and we were one of those you know small uh plucky alternatives that that set out to appeal to the, those who didn't want to you know be force fed the the mainstream what we saw as uh as rather um establishment or um, conventional worldview that we got in the in the local paper. Yes, absolutely. Because at that stage, you know, there had been the fanzine, the growth of fanzines as well. I mean, there had been those kind of alternative magazines and papers. Because I think in this area, East Anglia, we had the Waveney Clarion, which kind of coincided with the Barsham and Albion fairs and that kind of movement from the early seventies. But then we had things like you know, Mark Perry, and then I don't know if you read James Brown the 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 writer not the singer his yeah. kind of story about growing up in Leeds and starting a fanzine and that's how it started and then the fanzine boom really began and then you had I don't know when Leeds had a paper didn't they the, the Leeds other paper it was called and I think Norwich also had their alternative magazine monthly as well so it was a very important sort of place yeah. wasn't it absolutely was... and I think you know it just goes to show that there were there were dissatisfied 
uh, audiences or or people who not only dissatisfied but also felt they had the spirit and the enthusiasm and the energy and the know-how to start their own their own things. I mean, we were we were able to get distribution through the whole of Greater Manchester. We were on the newsstands um, alongside the Evening News. We became you know an accepted. Um, you know, because we weren't a fancy, we were a professionally produced magazine. Um, and that enabled us to become, if you like, entry entryists, you know, trying to get our, our messages out through the widest possible audience rather than be a sort of a fanzine sold outside, alongside queues, uh, outside gigs, you know. We wanted to be um, as, as, as in as as much in the in the mainstream um, to sell our sell our product. Yes, and was it a big learning curve? Because you mentioned in your book that you just published um, your first your first edition or first cover was um, was it hideous? You mentioned yes, was it was it was hideous. It, it it didn't work. We we kind of learned, we 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 were forced to learn the hard way. Uh, and um, yeah, I, I can't begin to describe, um, but I will try. It was we we mistakenly thought we should go with a commercial approach and uh, we would do a, a feature on um, Christmas. It was a Christmas edition where we 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 launched and um, it featured two the two small boys looking at a screen and it, the the feature was about the best micro to buy for your kids that that week uh, that Christmas and therefore you know it was a resounding flop. Um, but we soon got the best. We soon worked out how to, you know, how to produce a decent cover. Uh, the next cover was a cover of of New Order, the band, and um, was, was full color and looked looked really really good. And uh, we persevered and <laughs> got through that particular. Because there's uh, a picture of the three of you together, the three the, the three. Yeah, the editors, yeah. And then how how quickly did the magazine? grow because obviously you know it, it's it's quite a jump isn't it when suddenly someone has to deal with distribution someone has to do the the grubby work of advertising revenue then sort of collecting money everyone wants to just interview probably tony wilson or morrissey but then someone yeah, else has got was to me. do it was i was i was that person um we started off with three people we soon went to five and then you know over a five-year period we we set up a typesetting business um that um, contracted out to do other magazines including the gay uh, community magazine in manchester so as i say we we grew uh we didn't we, where we made money we put it back into jobs and so we, we ended up with sort of 20 20 plus staff um and ran that for five years so i think it proved that you know it was a small circulation we printed ten thousand and sold between three and five thousand and you know, in this conurbation of three million, um, that's not too impressive. But it was enough to make our uh, give us our our salary. Yes, uh, um, it proved that there was some kind of an audience. Um, it was it was a needed publication. The but the irony of a lot of the eighties creativity. Um, that I found from the indie world anyway, or alternative, was the, the wonderful world of unemployment and housing benefit and council tax and also the enterprise allowance schemes and and uh, such and the creative enterprise allowance scheme. So did did any of that sort of filter into running the business as well? 
Yeah, well, when we when we set up the business, um, we I think I'm pretty sure for six months we were on the enterprise allowance scheme, and and I know that other businesses in Manchester that gone to be very big, like the um, developer Urban Splash, uh, also was on the EAS, and um, to to us it was a very <laughs> simple and elegant solution, really. You know, to get you off the dial and and to allow allow you to earn money and. Um, you know, I failed to see any good reason why it shouldn't be, like, why it couldn't be restarted again today, you know, because um, it enabled, gives you a basic um, income and said, go off and be an entrepreneur. And a lot of people, I think, went into market stalls that ended up on in retail businesses like Red or Dead, Wayne Hemingway, Urban Splash Property. And these are, these are just people I know, you know. Yes. Uh, so, and, frank, and frankly, yeah. most of those indie bands that we loved in the 80s were, were all doing that until they were suddenly seen on top of the pops. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> but well, did, you, to, did, it help, did it help being yeah. a bit of an outsider, being in Manchester at this stage? Did you have a different look or a different attitude or, or a bit of an optimism or a romanticism about the place that perhaps people who lived there didn't sort of share with you? Yeah, I think... Um... You know, factory records and the, the the artwork around them, the aura around Joy Division, the, the photography of Kevin Cummins, you know, the, the mythologising of Ian Curtis, uh, who committed suicide when I was a, a first-year student, you know. All that, I think, created a sort of a charisma that the city, um, not exploited, but that, you know, young people came to Manchester um yeah. In a, in a, I apologise that for my dog. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, I'll start. I'll start again. I think yes, the, the the artwork of Factory Records, photography of Kevin Cummings, Ian Curtis's suicide, all went to create a kind of um, you know, a mythology and an aura in Manchester that did attract people uh, my age and in the years afterwards that um, who. <laughs> Let's face it, you know, um, didn't come to Manchester because it was a, a, a comfortable, glossy, uh, affluent place, but there was something rather thrilling about these the crumbling red brick um, warehouses and the um, dystopian housing estates like the, you know, the concrete jungle of Hume. So um, we came because it was an interesting place and a creative city for young people um, yes. and it acted all that acted as a sort of a like an alternative tourist you know camp visitor campaign for for, for young people who, who would come from all over the country um uh to be in this um this 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 crumbling almost lost empire um feel that manchester had back then did you would you would you sort of feel um, that the, the kind of three key parts of Manchester in the eighties was was factory records, um, the Smiths, and and the housing estate of Hume? Was that was that a kind of were those three things absolutely pivotal to the to the capital? I think um, yes, Hume was very you know full of creatives. Uh, factory records was, was was started their first nights in. Uh, Hugh in a sort of <laughs> form in, in a bus driver's social club. Um, that's where the first factory nights, um, were, you know, punk gigs were put on. But I think the missing ingredient 
in your list is the Hacienda nightclub because um, with Joy Division royalties, um, Battery Records was very, very flush. And what did they do? What did those directors do? Uh, Wilson, Rob Breton, Peter Saville, uh, Alan Erasmus, um, Martin Hannett, the fifth director, didn't want to open the club. He wanted a recording studio that was outvoted. And with that money, with the money they made, they didn't, you know, become tax exiles or go to the Isle of Man like a lot of Man- Manchester millionaires do or go to London. You know, they put it into the Hacienda. Um, and that became... And, and that was very clearly in the, you know, I, I use um, contemporaneous quotes from Wilson and uh, documents from the time to for them to articulate the, the club. Well, it was more than a club. You know, it was a, like a lab experiment in popular culture is what Tony Wilson called it. Um, it was giving something to Manchester to a city centre that had been completely hollowed out. I mean, now 75,000 people live in Manchester city centre. Back then, only 500 people did. There were mainly caretakers and security guards living on the premises. And it was saying, we, you know, they were so gutted at how low the city, um, you know, the first industrial city in the modern world, how low it had become, had, had gone, that they wanted to kickstart something in the city and give something back. And city building, you know, the reinvention of the city was very much a part of their, of their thinking. And, you know, my book, Manchester Unspun, basically <laughs> traces this absurd, preposterous notion that, you know, opening a huge outsize nightclub and music venue for an audience that didn't really exist uh, kick-started this, huge, this, this regeneration and reinvention of a city where, you know, which is now, you know, really booming, effectively, mm-hmm. development. Uh, residential offices, music venues. Um, you know, there's been an incredible upsurge in Manchester's fortunes. Yes, uh, and you know, I and I put a lot of that down to this DIY anarchic, um, radical art movement set up by this bunch of the bunch of misfits, intellectuals, and hooligans <laughs> that was Factory Records. Yes, absolutely. And just before going back to the onto the book, which is always good. But how does the 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 magazine then sort of um, continue? Because obviously there's that sort of honeymoon period. You have your first sort of arguments and fallouts. You get back together, and often there's there's a good bit, and then you know there's some tricky growing periods and and the pain of it sometimes. How was it for you, sort of running this uh, publication? Well, it was exhausting because it, you know, it was a fortnightly magazine, but we were we were uh, under resourced. We worked ridiculous hours, um, but we 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 never missed an uh, an issue over 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 the first five years. Um, it was you know it was a struggle, but when you when you're 21, 22, um, and you think that. Your your life depends on it. Then you you know you do go that extra mile. And we you know we for me personally it was just a, a great way of living, experiencing a city that Manchester was a big city, but it was still like a village. You know you still you could still run into some people you know you knew. Unlike sort of being in London, for instance, 
um, instead of that kind of community atmosphere, and uh, we have Granada TV here. Uh, we have had um, still do big uh, theatrical venues with uh, celebrities, stars, actors coming through. So there was always a very strong entertainment uh, and TV, especially um, uh, activity to uh, to write about and people people to interview. Um, and, you know, Manchester kind of sustained us, really. You know, we, we as journalists, uh, we kind of worked 60-hour weeks, but also we, we would be, uh, go to our exhibitions and film premieres and just eat all the free, eat all the free food because that was the cheapest way of, of uh, sustaining ourselves, you know. Well, I have we, to say in the book, you do have some fantastic we photographs. Thin, we lift off the thin of the land. <laughs> <laughs> But the, but but great photograph, uh, great photographs of some of the people you had, and also on the covers from Morrissey to Caroline Ahern, and um, yes, and you met people like Joe Strummer and you know um, various MPs as well. So then, yeah. so so when when does the the magazine become something that's that you can see is beginning to falter? Yeah, I think late eighties. I think we'd lost some advertising. Um, you know, it was always we we were always very hand to mouth. Um, I actually had left to go to become a freelance journalist. The magazine continued, but soon after that, it, it, it went into administration, and it was then it was taken over by the Manchester Evening News, who, to their credit, you know, resourced it properly. The Evening News then was owned by the Guardian Group, and. Um, and it became even more, you know, much more professional. Um, it was distributed very um, comprehensively across the, you know, the city region of Greater Manchester, and it 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 um, was, you know, a proper magazine which paid paid journalists properly um, and launched the careers of people like uh, John Ronson, the the broadcaster. Um, uh, Matt Greenhouse, the screenwriter. Um, there's lots of people who are now in film, TV, media, journalism, you know, got their first uh, writing experience on City Life. Mark, Mark Commode, the film critic. Yes. Uh, he started uh, his first reviews of films were in, in City Life. So, um, yeah, so the Evening News took it over, ran it for, I think, another another 10 years or so before they decided for whatever reason I think under new ownership that was it was just it was closed down um yeah. but then again and as I said earlier the, the age of the internet had dawned and people were getting um uh information about entertainment what's on uh in their city from a range of different sources and felt maybe felt I didn't need to buy a magazine Yes, I know. There was at that moment, I think, Big Flame from Manchester had to sort of call it a day. I think one album was just enough. It was the perfect thing, wasn't it? I, I did an interview with one of the members. He said I, that was all All the public needed was just that one release, and that was it. Big Flame. Meteoric burst. <laughs> Over there. Yeah. And end on a high and have a reunion. How did, um, you know, because obviously at that time, you know, and most people who were in any sort of youth movement in whatever decade, but in the 80s, how did drugs affect the scene at that stage? Because, you you know, most people were, you know, drinkers, cannabis, a bit of this and that, you know, ecstasy so comes along. Come to, 
yeah, we come quite nicely chronologically to the late 80s, really, because, um, you know, I write quite a lot about the um, the rave scene in Manchester in the late 80s that um, where the music um, and the night the nighttime scene was uh, incredibly dramatically transformed by the arrival of, of ecstasy, um, you know, a class A drug that some people at first didn't realise was a class A drug, um, but it completely revolutionised going out. The music changed. Um, you know, guitar bands, if you remember, started becoming, you know, started getting in drum machines and becoming more uh, dance orientated. The Hacienda, which was a, you know, often a half-empty uh, venue for guitar bands, became you know over a couple of years uh, absolutely sold out um 1500 capacity uh frenzy of uh of high energy dancing uh lighting and sound completely immersed you at the hacienda with um and the club which never really worked as a live music venue suddenly became a brilliant nightclub because of all the different levels it was on. You could basically see people dancing everywhere on the chairs, the tables, on the stairs, on the balcony, on the stage. It became, you know, a, a, a real visual uh, experience watching people dance uh, and, a, and a, almost like a sense around experience. And, um, you know, the Hacienda then has become mythologized in, in so many ways as as the ultimate nightclub and it was it was the ecstasy boom that um you know that made that happen people stopped drinking alcohol and uh, the night the hacienda and other nightclubs failed to make any money from what was previously a you know a strong income stream from selling booze and um that was you know one of the many problems that uh brought you know the hacienda into um into a spiral of decline and uh, but the main one was um gang related crime around the market for selling uh illegal ecstasy you know in in and around the club so it became a sort of a lightning conductor for all uh everything that was bad about uh about the rave scene Yes, it's always tricky. I always think that most youth movements have about five five years. That's if you're optimistic, I suppose. But for me, you know, like the indie, indie scene of the 80s was, was you know, 83 to 87, which are the years of the Smiths. And when that broke, there was like another wave of 16 to 18-year-olds. And then there was the ecstasy thing that came along. And then unless you were going to be able to move over a bit like, you know, Primal Scream or the Soup Dragons or the Happy Mondays, you know, people like the uh, the mighty lemon drops and the primitives were never going to quite be able to continue on. Was, doing I, that. I managed a band at that time called Raintree County. They were a, a classical, jingly, jangly, melodic, pop rock outfit. And uh, they, you know, they had the misfortune to be um, peaking in terms of their uh, output at the time of Manchester and uh, and rave music, so they they couldn't get arrested, as the phrase goes. You know, in terms of <laughs> yes, I did. I, yes, there was quite a lot of little bands that just their timing was just off. I think it was a bit like that in the the late seventies with a few American bands who came over, and it was like punk rock had just hit, and they were like 
we're here. And it's like, yeah, yeah, three years too late, I'm afraid. It's the hair, the moustache. It's Rock not going to music, yeah. <laughs> but how important was football at this stage? Because obviously there was this kind of rise in, you know, the Manchester, you know, the Alex Ferguson, Cantona, Schmeichel, suddenly Roy Keane. You know, suddenly Man United become this a colossal team. You know, I think Man City had Alan Ball still. Was it the Alan Ball years at this stage? Oh, you're, you're, you're right. That's very true. Uh, late 80s, early 90s. Um, yeah, I mean, Ferguson built these winning teams that, and was able to, you know, regenerate winning sides from, you know, from the same, in the same club, recycling players out and bringing new players in and doing it again and again. So, Manchester United obviously was kind of a worldwide brand and and people um and, and gave the city a kind of a glamour and um a, a, a charisma I think that um you know that Manchester certainly benefited from in those years and you know the players um would sometimes interface with the local music scene you know seen in nightclubs uh, sometimes where they weren't supposed to be um, I think Cantona was the real, uh, you know, was the the quirky um, king of, um, you know, of, of people who who didn't like football particularly, but were interested in in characters. And uh, you know, Eric Cantona really um, was able to, I suppose, get around Manchester, um, network, socialise in ways that the younger Man- Mancunian players weren't allowed to by Alex Ferguson. I think mainly because he Cantona didn't drink, um, but was um, was a bit of a law unto himself uh, in terms of uh, <laughs> club rules. You know, he, he, he was seen here, there and everywhere uh, and uh, became a real, um, I think, very well-respected figure even by city fans who just you know uh respected his uh his aura uh, yeah it's <laughs> it quite so what, i know and um unlike lee sharp who was never going to last in alex's squad was he so for for the 90s then we have the john mage years for most of it you you sort of you become you you start a pr company at this stage hmm. i left the manchester even news um I could see the way Manchester was going. Um, there were hotels opening, bars, and I had been a te- um, gossip columnist on the newspaper for 10 years, and I decided to strike out on my own, and I became a publicist um, launching, uh, for instance, the Malmaison Hotel and various bars, including one owned by Mick Hucknall called Barca, and um, yeah, I could, you know, I, I wanted to, I suppose, be part of that regeneration of the city that is in very early years was was evolving into something very interesting. You know, taking over these these derelict areas and um, and doing uh, interesting creative things with them. Working with um, property companies like Urban Splash, who are turning these old mills and warehouses into um into into flats and and uh, and leisure venues and it was a, it was a very exciting time because um you know i think there's a real thrill about seeing you know something 
crappy and old and grubby in terms of a neighbourhood flowering into a place that attracts um, attracts people uh, to live and work and play. And um, yeah, I, I I could see there was something going on. Yes, we to be part of it. But I have to say there is there is in the book, and I've seen it in Richard uh, Davis's one of his little publications that came out on Cafe Royal Books. This amazing photograph of the estate, the Hume estate, and there's these traveller kids-ish and uh, dreadlocks, and there's a horse on the grass, and it's just an amazing picture. Do you do you feel that that regeneration, though, is always going to bring other problems and kind of issues to these times? That's going to be a bit of a hard, a hard one to cope with, knowing that actually you're going to lose a lot of that kind of raw energy and quality that sometimes is going to be priced out of the market i i think it's almost inevitable if regeneration is successful it brings in people um and it brings in investment and it smartens areas up it makes areas feel safer for instance um and yeah i think you know certain neighborhoods communities that were there and hume was a very um you know, out there community of bohemians and and, and and artists and a lot of people who didn't pay, you know, their rent, um, you know, using old council flats. But I, I don't think, you know, in any kind of any real world, any practical sense, that could have continued for, I don't think the authorities would have allowed it to continue because they had lots of families they needed to house. They needed to turn Hume into... Um, into a if you like a normal neighborhood um which they've you know which t- to be fair um uh, it's a it's it, hume is now um, a completely different place but um it houses far more people uh and it's far more you know it's far more conventional far more regulated but the you know the artists and the bohemians have found other you know uh, Cubby holes in the city, other little areas where uh, property's cheap, where little uh, uh, music venues are opening and artist studios. Um, I think, you know, if regeneration is successful, it tends to raise prices and raise rents, and that's when um, artists get moved on uh, or priced out. And, you know, my book does include quite a few um, examples of where that's happened, certainly in the last 10 years as pace of uh, Manchester's um, gentrification has really uh, has really picked up and um, you know I, I don't know any city where successful regeneration hasn't had that effect it seems to be you know we live in a uh, property centered capitalist um, economy then those are the kind of effects we're going to we're bound to see Yes, absolutely. And just briefly then, sort of the the major moments and then the new Labour years, what was that like for you? How did you navigate that period? I think the, the new Labour years were interesting because um, one of the things that people found interesting about my book is that I point out that um, in many respects, Manchester was um, pioneering sort of public and private partnerships um while it had labor you know a kind of a steadfast labor uh, regime was quite business friendly and was doing the kind of thing that before uh blair uh won power and talked about working with business 
um, before um, before that Labour, um, you know, for that Labour administration. And I think that it's it's surprising for people that Manchester always found it hard to get on with Labour Party um, centrally, and even up until recently. Um, uh, the Labour Party nationally has not always been the biggest fan of devolution um, for regional cities, which Manchester has kind of pioneered. Um, and of course, that devolution was granted to Manchester by um, George Osborne in a in a coalition government, you know, Tory dominated government. So I think people found it surprising that I pointed out where Manchester has had a better shake from the Conservatives than from Labour over the years. And, um, you know, even going back to uh, Michael Heseltine helping out with the Hume uh, redesign, helping out with Manchester uh, after the IRA bomb in 1996. Um, and, you know, it's sort of overturning some, um, some maybe surface ideas about what Manchester is. It's been a very, very business friendly, very, very, uh, um, cooperative with conservative governments over the last uh, 30, 30 years. Yes, isn't it interesting? And sort of coming to the book, because it's a very dense book, isn't it? Not in it. There's a lot, there's a lot there. Um, so when did you decide you wanted to sort of bring this all together, all your sort of uh, own yeah. experience and also the, the, your love of Manchester as well? Well, during COVID, um, I was uh, at a loose end. A lot of people were. Um, there was a window or two, wasn't there, where we were allowed to meet. And a chap came to my house, John Savage, well-known um, pop writer. Oh, yes. God, John. Working with Manchester University uh, British Pop Archive. And he wanted to look at all of my magazines and my copies of City Life Um uh, for and they the the British Pop Archive acquired my my archive um, of print magazines I had 30, 30 odd boxes of magazines going back to nineteen seventy six and my full collection of City Life as a research resource for academics and researchers and that includes um, the archive includes Ian Curtis's lyrics um, New Order manager Rob Gretton's archive stuff like that so they launched all this about a year ago but he suggested to me look you've been here all this time you're stuck here during covid why don't you try and um, write something and i had a lot of source material um in my possession um at home and um yeah i was able to uh, find a narrative through the story starting when i arrived in 1979 to um to the well to covid really to 20, 2020 when you know the only activity going on in manchester city centre this huge city centre the only thing going on you could hear was uh construction sites because building uh building sector was allowed to continue so the towers were still rising you know when everyone else was um stuck at home and prevented from meeting the uh the, the the investment in Manchester from around the world, you know, sovereign wealth funds and US corporations and UK pension funds all ploughing their money in, into Manchester was still continuing. And so that was the time I thought to use that time to put it all a uh, 40 year story, a history of the city 
into one book, which I hope uh, will be will be uh, looked at in years to come as a an, an account, you know, not yes. account, but a strong account of how the the dirty old town turned into the skyscraper city. Yes, and how do you and how do you sort of feel with some of the building work going on? And you know, you have the, the famous ones with Gary Neville and and the such like. How's how's that kind of relationship? I think a lot of people um, are troubled by it because um, the city has changed, you know, so dramatically that um, you know it, people took, come into town after maybe being a month or two months out uh, without visiting and go, "Oh my God, there's another one. Where does that come from?" Now, what people need to remember is that. Um, they're not knocking down old buildings to build these. These are all on derelict land. They're all on car parks or, um, you know, unused tracts of land. And uh, like most post-industrial cities, um, Birmingham's the same. They're huge tracts of land that are basically were had factories and industrial uses that, you know, are brownfield vacant sites. And that's what's been happening in Manchester. Those sites have been... Um, are getting closer to the city centre because there's so much dense, um, you know, high high rise dense uh, population. And what's that? What that's doing? It's cha- creating the character. Sorry, changing the character of the city centre. So, you know, I've launched a PR. Many clubs, music venues, comedy venues, bars that opened and closed because there weren't the people to make them viable. Now, these the tens of thousands of mainly young people and the Manchester Salford neighboring cities, you know, those city centers is it's the youngest, um, it, it's the youngest population, uh, or it's the population is becoming younger at a faster rate than anywhere else in Europe because young people are, are flocking to this place because it's got great cultural and social life. Um, and those bars and, and venues that would have once opened then closed are now being are now thriving because of this huge standing army that needs to be uh, fed and watered and entertained. Uh, How much does does it depend on the student population of the the city? Only, only slightly. I mean, the um, Manchester has a large student population, um, but. Manchester is booming in terms of tech jobs, digital jobs, uh, life sciences, uh, media, um, uh, and as those sort of and software. Those kind of um, those kind of jobs are very uh, and legal and professional. So it's it's not. Um, and Manchester very much was in in the time we had city life very much was based around an academic year, an academic you know the student crowd and things. Nothing happened in the summer when they all went home. It's it's not like that now. It's it's completely different. Um, but the students obviously get the benefit um, of of a much more vibrant city. And and the unusual thing about Manchester's universities is they are really close to the city centre. They're not on campuses outside the city. So it all adds to the, the mix of a very youthful, vibrant centre. 
I know that um, dear old Norwich is always having issues with roads and pedestrianisation and cycle paths and and nobody really has this big overview of how to really deal with it. So they sort of fudge a bit here and then a couple of years later fudge a bit there, waste a lot more money, it still doesn't quite work. How does Manchester cope with those kind of big decisions? You've just described exactly the situation in Manchester. Cycle paths that don't work, cycle paths that cause uh mayhem i mean there's a bit andy mayor the, the greater manchester mayor andy burnham has brought in something called a b network bwe to the manchester uh icon of the b um which is a cycling a series of cycling networks and you know it's upset a lot of people even people who are pro cycling because of the design of it and you know it just seems to be a constant in whatever city you go to that um that you 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 know either poor design or what's perceived to be poor design by certain um certain groups create creates constant kind of conflict yes it is quite tricky but do you feel and you know with the book do, and culture do you feel like it's important to try and hold on to that legacy of the past of what happened 45 years ago to keep manchester yes interesting <laughs> Very acute question because, yeah, um, you know, it's it's fair to say that, you know, um, Factory Records and Hacienda to a lot of people in Manchester, they're sick of hearing about it. And there's a kind of a cliched aspect and a lazy um, element of just leaning back on, uh, on our legacy. Um, I think, you know, it's different from Liverpool just harking on about the Beatles all the time because Manchester's... Um, factory record they stayed in manchester they didn't leave the city they put their money back into manchester you know motown was the kind of equivalent of factory and did back in the 60s in detroit but in the 70s they left for la um factory didn't do that they put all their money back into manchester so i think it's worth celebrating but it's important and um and essential really for it not to become that kind of a cliche and mm. to a new generation to uh to 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 respect the the past but also to move on from it it's interesting because in a city that i've quite grown to love is las vegas and it was all about entertainment and gambling but over the last 10 years they've just moved that's kind of almost getting sidelined to sports so they're constantly building a new stadium for this and a new stadium for that and another new stadium and it's you know sport has become just such a big thing in vegas a boxing game but these stadiums that keep getting built and you think oh we're going to knock that hotel down and put another stadium so Sport is so big in in Vegas. Is it the, is it a little bit like that with Manchester now, with the money that's come in as well? Absolutely. You've got obviously United, which has finally got uh, some new um, part ownership with uh, Jim Ratcliffe. You know, looking to um, to recover. You know, some of its, uh, its its lost allure over the past ten years. But uh, Manchester City, um, with its Abu Dhabi sovereign wealth funding behind it is is really opening uh up kind of almost las vegas of the of, you know of, of britain because right next to city's football ground they're almost complete uh completed the the building of something called co-op live which is a 23 and a half thousand 
uh, state-of-the-art venue with the most uh, live music venue, the most incredible um, facilities, very, very um, cleverly designed um, live music venue. That will, that is a, you know attracting. For instance, the Eagles are playing three nights their farewell tour there. They're not playing London, you know. So the idea of this, and there are other. Um, leisure attractions due to be sort of put in around this um this venue so the idea is to start tilting the balance away from london towards towards manchester for these really big uh, music acts and we also have the factory international um named after factory records and that was sponsored by aviva it's now also called the viva studios which is seven thousand capacity venue for cutting edge very sort of um, uh, almost avant-garde and um, high, you know, uh, elite culture, dance, ballet. Um, oh, I have some, you know, rock music there. And that's just opened this year at the cost of 200, £240 million. <laughs> My God, that's handy. So where two years ago, probably, I came to Manchester to that exhibition, Factory Records, which is in an old sort of industrial mill. Where was that? Would that have been the Museum of Science and Industry? That's the one. Yeah. yeah, which is on the site of, you know, the world's first railway station. Um, yes. Where the first intercity passenger train left for Liverpool in 1830. So, you know, and all this is going, it's literally next door, the um, Aviva Studios, um, which is on the site of Granada TV, you know, where Tony Wilson put on the Sex Pistols in 1976. You can see that, you see my book's dense because you've got these dense layers of history, um, uh, social uh, and cultural uh, episodes that are really sort of um, meaningful. Um, would would, would you go as far to say that the, the kind of the lightning that struck and created that fire was 76 then with the Sex Pistols playing. Was I mean, that a was got, that a pivotal moment? Totally. You've got to you've got to see that as as a as a um incendiary moment that set alight or or set ablaze all these creative uh combos, you know, Joy Division, Buzzcocks, Morrissey was there, uh Marky Smith. Um, you know, Mick Hucknall was there, God bless him. You know, all these people went out and um and formed bands after seeing after seeing the Sex Pistols. Obviously, Tony Wilson was there. There were two, there were two gigs, and you know, it depends who you believe um exactly, you know, who was at which one. But the point is that that really did um inspire all kinds of cultural um explosions um and yeah you can pinpoint 76 as that that starting point it's almost up there with the the munich air disaster in the sense of creating these great kind of tragic but you know kind of amazing moments that sort of shape the story doesn't it the narrative gets taken from that moment on duncan edwards the the kind of the plane samat surviving manchester coming back from the ashes yeah, I think, you know, we obviously, um, you, know, you know, history, they say, is one, you know, is, is one damn thing after another, but certain of those things are 
clearly have dates and are really, you know, you can you need to pinpoint them to help put markers down to help us understand the flow of history and the and the and the flow of uh, of cultural cause and effect. So, yeah, I mean, my book, you know, looks at looks at that moment, but it also looks at opening the hacienda and certain other key moments in uh, in Manchester's music history, but also political um, history, because along with the music, there's this twin track of politics that has gone through the city, but um, where they, they, they real, the city's leaders realised that uh, the music culture was something that we had that we could exploit, if you like, for worldwide profile. Um, a very key uh, example of that is early 90s, Hacienda played by crime. Uh, the place would have been shut down in any other city of the world. Police wanted to close it, but the city council lobbied the police to keep it open because they knew, you know, it was uh, it, it was interesting and an attraction to uh, to people worldwide. In fact, business delegations would come to Manchester Town Hall, to, and the leader Graham Stringer would show them all the statues and tell them the the history and the first passenger train and all this kind of thing. And where can we go to the Hacienda, you know? <laughs> um, they could tell that um, when, they went to, when they went to America on, on fact-finding missions that the Hacienda was known there. So I think, you know, it's um, it's easy these days to say, well, you see, we all know that uh, art and culture is big business, but I think Manchester's leadership are tuned into the potential long time before um, before mainstream um, politics had. Yes, well, it's interesting because New York had CBGBs and Max's Kansas City and then it sort of developed into Studio 54 and, um, and none of those places were probably very good on their uh, anti-drug policy <laughs> or accountancy problem. Oh, definitely not accountancy either. Um, so, and then you had Glastonbury Festival, which was this kind of wild event that took place in Somerset at Pilton. Um, but again, you know, riddled with drugs and and all sorts of um, things being broken. You know, curfews. But you know, again the wealth it brought to that area and the global awareness to that area. You know, no one wants to turn down that paycheck if you're a neighbouring farmer, really, are you? Sure. But I think it took a it took an element of bravery um, back in the uh, early 90s to do that because I think it was not quite accepted that um, the, the rough edges that came with youth culture should be, um, you know, given a pass um for you know for, for for the benefit of you know profile and and interest and certainly you know i think manchester it was it was kind of surprising to a lot of people in the city back then that the council were were trying to keep hacienda open yes absolutely and from and sort of your reflection and and that those early years with the with the magazine what what was your learning curve with starting a small idealistic kind of adventure and and how it developed because because obviously no one has a sort of a particular plan uh, a kind of long you know long-term plan and all these bands that I normally interview, you know, they have that five-year narrative. They get together, they have that 12-month rehearse and get the single John Peel play it, get the John Peel session, the first album going good, transit band around the country, second album a bit tricky, or oh, third album it's all over, you know, and it's like, well, 
normally it's like we hate each other and we've got no money. So that's that's often a very simple. Yeah, I mean, really, you know, that's that pretty much describes the city life experience. You know, um, we, you know, you need to be young, need to have energy, you need to be prepared to bury your differences to to for the project, whatever it might be, you know, a band or a magazine. And then you live with it and you 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 know you 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 get the you know the gratification of doing it and the feedback from whatever your you know your public is. But then ultimately, you know, you get into your late twenties and you realize that uh, you haven't got a you know a penny uh, to spend and you don't like the people uh, that you're having to grind it out with uh, on a daily basis. Um, or maybe you know need to spend some time away from them. So they have a limited shelf life. I think that's you know that's the lesson. But uh, wouldn't have wouldn't have missed it for the world. And I'm sure most bands would say the same. Yes, absolutely. And that's and did you? I mean, I mean, is it possible to compare that time with the magazine to the to the PR, or is it just a totally different? in a chapter um, PR was you know it was a business um it was a fun business and um it was a different yeah you know, I ran that around the agency for, tw- for over 20 years so um I, I think it was different because it was reasonably well um successful therefore it was well resourced and therefore you know you didn't have the gnawing sense that you'd have no money you know next week kind of thing which is always the, always the case with a with the hand-to-mouth existence of a of an alternative magazine. Yes, and you must be really chuffed to know that you do also play quite a key role in Manchester's kind of development over the last, you know, from 40 years ago. Yeah, I think um, I think it's for other people to, to say that, but I, what I think the book has got is access, you know, it's access to... Um, the I've worked with a, with with the leaders, you know, the council chief executive, the leaders of the council, uh, well-known music people like Tony Wilson, Peter Hook, uh, property people like Tom Bloxham and Gary Neville, and so you know I'd like to think that their revelations um, in there that a make people chuckle sometimes, but also bring insight into how. The levers of power and influence uh, work in a you know in a big city like Manchester, which is becoming probably more and more important with, with every year that passes. And therefore, I hope the book's taken in years to come as a as an interesting document of of how you know uh, how a group of people uh, in a collective endeavour trans- <coughs> transform the fortunes of their city. Yes, well, it's interesting because I remember I think it was the nineties. It was a brilliant. TV uh, series called Our Friends in the North, and it kind of captures youthfulness and sort of cultural cultural changes as people get older. And I think, you know, so much of, of sort of reading bits of the book and stuff, it does remind me of those kind of moments of reflecting myself and going, blimey, or Ryan, you know, and, yeah, just so much, you know, there, there's little bits like, you know, that that performance by Marky Smith and the Fall, you know, with my the Michael Dan- Clark dance yeah. company that that you mentioned in there, and things Very that nice. I'd almost forgotten as well, and and so you know, I think it's just brilliant. I think I just I think all these cultural books that bring in art and politics and and the passing of time is always kind of valuable. So you must be chuffed. Well, I am, and the reviews would be very good. I mean, the Guardian 
gave it a brilliant review and called it coolly analytical and hugely entertaining. So uh, I could I could live with that, and we could maybe you know take take that as our uh, uh, as the end point to uh, to this chat. I'll be uh, yes. <laughs> And that is the end of the interview. That was me in conversation with Andy Spinoza talking about the book Manchester Unspun, How a City Got High on Music. That's out on Manchester University Press, available from all good bookshops and also online. It's a bargain and it's an amazing work of art. And uh, anyway, massive thank you to Andy for giving me that. This has been The C86 Show. I'm David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. All these shows have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Have a great week. Stay safe.